preference is a powerful thing. Preference influences the way we think and the choices that we make. Preference shapes our lives. And sometimes our preference conflicts with truth, which tempts us to deny truth so that we can have and do what we prefer. NBC.com posted an article by F. Diane Bart, a psychotherapist titled, Why Do We Believe Liars? And Bart asked the good question, why do we continue to believe someone even when we have rational and substantial evidence that they are lying to us? One reason Bart mentions is from Dr. Paul Ekman. Bart noted this, Ekman also found that we want to believe that someone is telling us the truth, especially when that person is emotionally or psychologically important to us. It is, a, it is painful to believe that someone we care about or trust is lying to us as is knowing that we cannot trust them. Bart goes on to say, denial of reality or not crediting something that we know is true in some part of our brain is a way we unconsciously protect ourselves from this pain. With denial, we can reassure ourselves that everything is okay even when it is not, end of quote. Sometimes lies are preferable to the truth. And though the threat of being lied to by someone is great, an even greater threat exists of lying to ourselves. Preference can be so strong that people actually lie to themselves to preserve an idea that they want to be true, but isn't actually true. Preference is a powerful thing, and it can cause people to be pig-headed. We, we all can be quite mulish, if you will, when we want to be right, but we know that we're not. We can fight tooth and nail even when we know that we're wrong. I have created conflict with Christina in our marriage knowing that I am wrong. In our text this morning, we're going to see just how pig-headed the human heart can be. People demonize John the Baptist. People slander Jesus Christ. Why? because they preferred their own version of reality, their own version of Judaism to the truth of the kingdom of God, to the truth of John, to the truth of Jesus. Their preference kept them in delusion, kept them from seeing the rational and substantial evidence for Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah promised them by God in the law and the prophets and preached to them by John the Baptist and by Jesus the Christ himself. They had the gospel prophecies. They anticipated the coming of the Messiah, but when the Messiah actually came to them, they preferred someone else. They wanted a Messiah, but not the Messiah. So because of their pig-headed preference, they suppressed the truth of Jesus Christ and King and, and the coming of his kingdom and deceived themselves and others. And Jesus exposed their pig-headedness, which ended up making them mad, to the point where they crucified him on a cross. Brothers and sisters, do you know why people reject Jesus Christ? It's not because the gospel is irrational. The gospel is supremely rational. It's not because of inadequate evidence. There's conclusive evidence. It's not because the gospel is deficient in any way. It's sufficient in every way. It's not even because the competing worldviews are superior. They're actually inferior and futile. 
People reject Jesus because in their sinful heart and mind, they prefer something else to be true. They block out the truth of Christ in order to live in the lie of their preference. For unbelievers, if the gospel proves true, it means they are not good people. And they are guilty under God's law, condemned by God and in desperate need of a savior. But, but see, to admit that is to threaten their self-esteem and their self-confidence and their self-determination and their self-government. They want to do what they want to do. So as Paul says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. You see, unbelief is a moral problem. Contrary to what many people think, rejecting the Christian faith is not an evidential problem, it is a moral problem. People make it seem today, many people do this in various ways, like they reject the gospel because of intellectual reasons, but that's really not the crux of the matter. People deny the gospel because of what it would mean for them if it was true. It would mean a collision with the holiness of God and their own sin, guilt, and condemnation under God's law. Their pig-headed preference prohibits them from prostrating before Jesus in penitential faith. Their pig-headed preference is the very thing keeping them from the truth which sets them free. Once again, brothers and sisters, Jesus provides you and me the gospel to allay our doubt, fortify our faith, so that we can repent, trust, and find assurance and comfort in him. The, the gospel actually changes our preference. The Holy Spirit working in us uh, by the gospel makes us want the truth and makes us want to live according to the truth. My outline this morning is simple. Number one, the game. Number two, the reality. Number three, the truth. Number four, the pig-headedness of unbelief. And number five, the wisdom of God. Number one, the game. The hostility against Jesus continues to rise in Matthew's gospel. One reason is that Jesus turns the heat up. He, he, his preaching draws attention to people's pig-headedness, uh, their pig-headed unbelief, and their refusal to repent, which makes unbelievers mad. Next time, in verses 20 through 24, Jesus condemns a bunch of cities for their pig-headed refusal to repent and trust in him. In chapter 11, Jesus is preaching to various cities. He sends words of gospel comfort to John, who's suffering in prison, which confirmed John's identity as the forerunner to the Messiah, but also Jesus' identity as the Messiah. Then in verse 7, Jesus begins to preach to the crowds. He affirms the identity of John as the Messiah's forerunner. He affirms the kingdom's present reality. He confirms his own messianic identity. He encourages that even the least in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist in terms of what they know of Christ and what they experience in Christ. Jesus challenges the crowds. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he continues to preach to the crowds thinking of something to which he can compare their generation. What did Jesus think about their generation? Verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? He was thinking of a simile, an analogy, uh, something to illustrate what that generation was 
what they were like, and, and he gave the example of children playing a game in the marketplaces, verse 16 and 17. It, referring to that present generation, is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. The marketplaces were spaces of commerce, public speaking, and legal affairs. They were essentially the social centers of towns, uh, or, or you could say the town squares. Life hustled and bustled in the marketplaces. Marketplaces were also spaces where children uh, apparently played, perhaps when it was busy. So imagine a bunch of kids in a first century marketplace and they're playing together. They're gathering together to play a game. Kids, you know how they are, they like to play house, play doctor, play various things. And in this case, they want to play wedding. This great uh, celebration, they'll have a grand time of it, they'll, they'll act like adults, they'll put it all together, they'll play flutes and then the wedding guests uh, will we'll be happy and this will be a happy occasion and the kids will, will sing and dance and they'll have a great time. All except the other kids, the other group of playmates, they don't want to dance. No, we will not dance. It kind of took my mind to the fish in Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. They're kind of like that. And our fish came down too. He fell into a pot. He said, do I like this? Oh, no, I do not. This is not a good game, said our fish as he lit. No, I do not like it, not one little bit. So like the fish, pig-headed children in the marketplaces are poo-pooing the idea of playing this game. Don't want to play the wedding game. These children can't be pleased. And I think that we've all been there. I am sometimes like this as I think through games. I, I think I've gotten worse as I've gotten older because I don't like games that don't take skill or strategy to win. Games where the winner didn't actually objectively beat their opponents. So I think catchphrase, if you've ever played that ridiculous game, is only glorified hot potato. I could give the best clues. I'm a word guy, so I love the challenge of getting it out in the fewest amount of words that people will understand, and then I've done the best, and, and I lose. How is that even fair? That's not objective. I think apples to apples is a completely ridiculous game. I don't know why you people play that game. You, you can have the best card that perfectly matches what they have, and for some arbitrary and subjective reason, they <laughs> think that was more funny, and you lose when you add the best card. No, I choose not to play that dumb game. So the pig-headed kids, they're not going to dance. They stubbornly refuse their friends. Okay, so their playmates adjust. Okay then, all right. How about we play funeral? Jewish funerals, these things were loud events. They would hire people to wail and moan and cry and play sad music. So the kids, they'll play funeral. They'll play a dirge. Or you could say a song of lament and the others will wail and moan and cry making a big spectacle together. No, we won't play that dumb game either. See, their playmates are being completely obstinate and stubborn and pig-headed. They just won't play along. No matter what you give them, not going to do it. Jesus is comparing that generation to pig-headed children refusing to play along. 
pig-headed children that can't be pleased no matter what, even petulant children. And I didn't know what petulant was. I saw it in a book, and so I looked it up. And it's a good word that defines Jesus' point well. When someone is petulant, they are suddenly and impulsively motivated or moved to irritation or annoyance over something petty and insignificant. They can't be pleased. They'll find in everything something to complain about. You offer them this, they want that. You offer them that, they want this. They just can't be pleased. They're petulant people. You can't please petulant people. So Jesus compared that generation to petulant children, stubborn children, pig-headed children. Now, what were they pig-headed about? Number two, the reality. Jesus used the playful children and their obstinate playmates to illustrate what was actually happening in and among the people around him. In verse 18, Jesus uses the word for, a little powerful word, which links verses 18 and 19 back to his simile in verses 16 and 17. Verses 18 and 19 tell us why Jesus compared that generation to pig-headed children playing in the marketplaces. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see what's going on? That generation was petulant towards the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, who's Jesus talking about? Who's included in this generation? Luke 7 describes this same event. But Luke includes an important detail that Matthew leaves out. Luke 7, 29 and 30 say this. Listen carefully. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. I think the Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, priests, the religious elites were primarily in view. But by extension, those among the crowds who refused to listen to to John and Jesus. Many did listen to John. We know that from, from, they they considered him a, a great prophet. We know that from Matthew 21. And not everyone slandered Jesus as viciously as the religious elites did. In fact, there were those who believed in Jesus and followed Jesus. But keep in mind that it was the crowds that eventually chanted, crucify him. Crucify him. The the religious leaders, and by extension, the unbelieving crowds were pig-headed, obstinate, and inflexible. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They rejected John's baptism, which meant they rejected humility. And they rejected the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They rejected Jesus and his gospel. They preferred their own version of reality, their own theory of the Messiah. One study Bible noted this, quote, like petulant children who find fault with whatever they are offered, People imagine John too remote and Jesus too common. They were not satisfied with either ministry, unquote. They didn't like John's ministry for this reason. They didn't like Jesus' ministry for that reason. Now, if you think about it, John 
was God's gift to Israel, an incredible gift to Israel. Matthew said that John came. He uses that language of came. He came, meaning God sent John. John came as the foremost Old Covenant prophet sent by God. John came with a gospel message directing people to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Excuse me, that was weird. (coughs) John came and preached the supremacy of Christ. God spoke to the people through John. He spoke a message of hope, a message of sin and guilt. Yes, that was hard to swallow, but also a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's coming was God's grace. But John was eccentric. John was odd. John was a bit unconventional. He wore camel hair clothing. That's weird. He he, he ate uh, locusts and wild honey, but he said no to fancy foods and, and alcohol. That's a bit weird. Luke 1.15 is a prophecy about John, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John was a godly man, filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet they said that he was a madman. John was a Holy Spirit-filled prophet sent to them by God, yet they said he had a demon. His ascetic lifestyle was just unacceptable to them, and like petulant children who cannot be pleased by any game, they rejected John. Their preference led them to reject the prophet that God sent to them. Then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, and he feasted. He drank wine, even refused to observe the fast which people thought that he should observe. His life was very different than John's, In fact, Jesus feasted and drank with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the outcasts of society. And I asked because he was a hedonist? No, of course not. No, no. He he was bringing gospel and grace to the outcasts. He spent time with them. Jesus came in celebration of the gospel of the kingdom of God. He said about his disciples who weren't fasting, and you might remember this, they were eating and drinking. Others are fasting. And Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus celebrated the gospel of the kingdom come. So Jesus' approach was different than John's. Their their tones were slightly different, but both men were called by God to bring God's divine message to the people. So let's be clear, Jesus was not in any way given to excess, but he lived differently than John. And, And they said that he was a glutton. They said he was a wino, a wine bibber, a boozer. They they rejected John for one reason and they rejected Jesus for another reason, and ultimately they insisted on their own way. Their preference drove them away from the gospel. I find the contrast between John's doubt and the unbelief of the crowds intriguing. I think there's a contrast here. See, John asked the question of Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? John asked because things didn't add up for him. It wasn't fitting together. But John was open to go to Christ, to send word, and to receive the message that Christ had for him, the truth that he had, he was open to hearing. Jesus then graciously gave 
gave John the gospel to allay his doubt, to fortify his faith, to bring him greater comfort and assurance in the gospel, which I think, as John is in prison, really helped John. I, I think he, he welcomed that, and I assume John responded to Jesus' words with repentance and faith. The religious leaders and many in the crowds, they were different though. They also thought that the Messiah would act differently, but their preference for another Messiah made them proud and closed off from the truth that Jesus gave. They didn't listen to Jesus like John did. They didn't believe. They didn't repent. Human preference must adjust to divine truth. Their sentiment was more like, you are not the Messiah that we want. So we will continue to look for another. John's doubt was allayed, his faith was fortified, and he settled on Jesus. But that generation continued in their pig-headed rejection of Jesus the Christ. And friends, things have not really changed today. They're not really changed among the Jews today. They, they continue to look for another Messiah. Jesus is not good enough. Jesus does not fit their preference of what the Messiah should be. Many today consider, many Jews today consider that Jesus is a false prophet. They outright reject the Son of Man. I like how H.B. Green put it. He said this, quote, the Jewish people have never really meant to take the kingdom seriously. They will neither repent with John because it is near, nor rejoice with Jesus because it is here, end quote. Gentiles reject Jesus as well. They hear the gospel and they just think it's so stupid and it doesn't line up. John announced the coming of the kingdom, but that generation stubbornly refused to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. John announced that the kingdom was at hand. It had come, but they stubbornly rejected him and plotted his destruction. Like petulant children who cannot be pleased, they, they found no reason to see goodness and comfort in the gospel that Christ brought. And I ask, is our generation much different? Our generation doesn't want to hear the law and gospel. Our generation doesn't want to hear honest preaching, even in many churches among professing Christians. Brothers and sisters, even as believers... Our preference sometimes hinders us from receiving divine truth. Do we love the truth? Do you love the truth? If a lie seemed to you to provide more immediate comfort or pleasure, would you prefer the lie to the truth? John 3, 19 and 20 say this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. You see, unbelief is never driven by evidence or the lack thereof. Unbelief is driven by the desire to keep one's wickedness concealed. I don't want people to know. People don't, don't believe the truth. They don't come to the light because their works are evil. They don't want their true selves to be put out there to see what they really are. 
That's a moral problem, not an evidential problem. They prefer the darkness of deception to the light of truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul said that people who are perishing are deceived because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So we could say that they preferred lies and perishing to loving the truth and being saved. There was a preference. Salvation was offered to them in the gospel, but they preferred a lie to the truth and therefore refused the truth to continue living in the lie only to perish in the end. So number three, the truth, the truth. Folks, how can we know the truth? And there are various answers that we can give in order to how we really know the truth. I think first, we hear the truth through teaching and preaching, the teaching and preaching of the gospel. Second, we, we cognitively understand the truth. So we hear it and in, in, in English, in our language, we say, okay, that is making sense. I understand what that statement is saying. And then third, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching and teaching of the gospel, the truth, and we embrace the truth by faith because of God's grace. But one of the ways that we know the truth is to look at the fruit that the truth produces. Look at the fruit that the truth produces. What does the truth produce? When someone receives the truth by faith, what does that truth produce in their life? You see, the truth becomes more compelling to people when they see the truth changing lives. Now, just kind of a thought here for you. Many people use the Crusades as an argument against religion and the Christian faith. The Crusades were not a faithful representation of religion and biblical Christianity. They were not faithful to the cause. Uh, The Crusades were a distortion and abuse of biblical doctrine. So we we, we don't judge ideas or propositions by a misrepresentation of those ideas and, and doctrines. We have to judge ideas and propositions fairly for what they actually are saying. Some people say that religion has been the greatest cause of violence in the world. Dr. Amy Orr Ewing, a senior vice president at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, made a great point. She said this, I'm often asked how I can believe in God when there have been so many wars caused by religion. The implication is that if only people would leave behind their convictions about the existence of a God, the world would be a much better, more peaceful place. Of course, very few people ever reflect on the fact that the very reverse of this was demonstrated in the 20th century, which saw the atheistic, communist, and Nazi ideologies rise. In fact, that century saw more killing than the previous 19 put together. Unquote. So even a distortion of Christianity doesn't come close to the horror of atheism carried out to its logical conclusions. What fruit has atheism and unbelief produced in the world? We'll study the lives of unbelievers and atheists. What fruit does it produce? The fruit of the truth of the gospel, on the other hand. When someone embraces Christ by faith, it produces sacrificial love. Look at John. 
look at Jesus. The men themselves, their ministries, their message reveal the goodness of the truth of Christ. John's life, it was unperfect, but we could say it was faithful to God's call upon his life. Jesus' life, it's perfect without fault or blemish. The preeminent display, he was faithful as well. He is the the, the person in which we see the fruit of truth. Look at the last little line of verse 19. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. What does that mean? In other scriptures, wisdom is personified, made to look like a human being, made to seem like a human. And I think wisdom here is God's wisdom personified. God's wisdom is justified, it's vindicated, it's shown to be true and right and divine when it produces the fruit of righteousness. God's wisdom saturating someone's life will inevitably produce the fruit of righteous living. John and Jesus are in view here, I believe. Look at their lives, look how they lived, look at, look at their faithfulness. John's imperfect faithfulness, Jesus' preeminent perfect Faithfulness, the wisdom of their message of law and gospel was justified by the fruit of their lives and ministries. The principle in verse 19, I think, is you will know them by their fruits. Luke says the same thing differently. Luke said, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now there, wisdom is personified as a mother, and I think righteousness, the fruit of her womb. The righteousness of the children's lives bear testimony to the validity of wisdom. Wisdom gives birth to righteousness, righteous living, living for the glory of God in obedience to God's holy law. In Proverbs 1, wisdom is personified as a woman, and she is in the streets, she is in the marketplaces, and she is calling out to, to, to people. She's calling out, she's raising her voice, and it just so happens that the simple, the fools are there listening, and they're scoffing, and they're hating knowledge. So what happens? Well, terror, distress, and anguish come for the foolish, the scoffers. But wisdom makes promises to those who listen to her. She says this, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So what does pig-headed unbelief produce in someone's life? A hatred of knowledge and truth and terror, distress, and anguish. They will eat the fruit of their way. What does the wisdom of God produce in someone's life? A love of knowledge and truth and security, comfort, and peace. Verse four, the pig-headedness of unbelief. Where does pig-headedness, where does, where does pig-headed unbelief get someone? They do not fear God, they scoff at the truth, they hate knowledge, they ignore the counsel of God, they have none of God's reproof, they call out for wisdom, but because they have rejected Christ, wisdom doesn't come to them. 
They are complacent and turn away from the truth. God says they will eat the fruit of their ways. They will be destroyed. Where did pig-headed unbelief get the people who rejected John and the people who rejected Jesus? They didn't repent. They didn't come to John for the baptism, for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. They didn't receive the gospel of the kingdom of God by faith. And what, what, what did they do then? Well, John the Baptist was beheaded. They maligned Jesus. They plotted against Jesus. They tried to destroy Jesus. Eventually, they cried out what? Crucify him. We don't want wisdom. They, they put the Messiah to death on a cross. That is the fruit of pig-headed unbelief. Anger, hatred, envy, greed, selfishness, anarchy, theft, lust, sensuality, lies. It's all the fruit of pig-headed unbelief. Stubborn and obstinate rebellion against God and others is the fruit of unbelief. You can see it in their lives. By their fruit, you will know them. As much as wisdom is justified by her deeds, foolishness is condemned by her deeds. Evil is condemned by her deeds. Wickedness is condemned by her deeds. I want to read for you something from one of our uh, missionaries. And it is an amazing story. There is a link here to our support out there, our money, to this kind of thing. And this will confirm two things. I hope it confirms two things. One, that wisdom is indeed justified by her deeds. And two, that evil is also condemned by her deeds. So one missionary wrote this. I hope it's vague enough that, that this is okay to do. Just this summer, one of the evangelists we support shared the gospel, and when people believed, he was asked to return and baptize the new believers. As he visited this remote place, a radical Hindu man from the town gathered a mob and they killed the evangelist. But within a few days, word came back to our group from that same village, please send another evangelist. Not every new believer was baptized. Our local folks mentioned that it was dangerous but the local believers said, we would rather die than not identify with Jesus in baptism. Because of their faith, another evangelist was sent to the town. This second evangelist had been the mentor of the man who was killed. And because the village was poor and some were starving there, the second evangelist also took food to distribute to all those in need. When he finished distributing the food, he recognized that the violent man who led the mob in murdering his friend, had gotten in the line for food wearing a poor disguise. The ringleader's family was starving, and he had come for food, desperate to feed them. The evangelist called him to the front of the distribution line and gave him food. He said that he could see the confusion and anguish on the face of this enemy at the kindness he was shown. We don't know the end of this story yet, but we do know that God is at work in a powerful way in this place and even in this enemy's heart. This man has begun to attend the local Bible study. Where does rejecting Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom get someone? Hatred, anger, bitterness, resentment, murder. 
Pig-headed unbelief blinds people to the rationality and goodness of Christ. Pig-headed unbelief enslaves people and produces monstrous evils in their life. But, number five, the wisdom of God. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. When God's wisdom saturates someone's heart, they go to a remote village to baptize. They die for the truth. They say, we would rather die than not identify with Jesus in baptism. They risk their lives for the sacraments, folks. The sacraments in the name of Christ and for the fame of Christ. They go to the place where their dear friend was killed, murdered. They give food to and lead Bible studies for their worst enemies. Who does this? Who acts like this? Who, who, th this is insane. We just don't see this kind of thing. Okay, who does this? Wisdom is justified by her deeds. The wise love like this. The wise give compassion like this. And their love and their wisdom and their gentleness and their fruit of the Spirit shines the truth. It's a way that we know who's telling the truth. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, the Son of God, the Messiah of God, came from heaven to earth to dwell among a wicked and violent people in order to love them unto death on a cross. When we look seriously at the life of Jesus Christ, we see the justification of wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. He's the wisdom in human flesh. And we know that because of the fruit of his life. Look at his life. He loved, he served, he told the truth in all circumstances, whatever the cost. He rebuked, he corrected, he taught, he wept, he healed, he gave signs. He submitted himself to the law and will of God unto death. His preference was not death, but his heart was so entirely submitted to the will of his God and his Father, and so we see him, we see in his life the supreme manifestation of love and wisdom. In your times of doubt, brothers and sisters, Jesus provides you the gospel to allay your doubt and fortify your faith. But why would he do that? Why would he do that in your time of need? Why would God show up and work something in your heart? Why? So that by his grace you can repent and trust in him and trust and experience the power that he gives for you to bear the fruit of righteousness, to live for God, to do the right thing. And then as you're living, with him, as you're living for him, doing the right thing, righteousness is coming out, you're filled with his spirit, you're drawing comfort and assurance from the gospel bearing fruit in your life, the wisdom of God bearing fruit in your life. Why would Jesus work faith in your heart and why would he take the time to strengthen your faith through the sacraments? Why would he do that for you and for me? Simple, to make you like him. To conform you to him unto your greatest joy so that his wisdom would come to life in your lifestyle. 
Your thoughts matter, brothers and sisters. Your choices matter. Your actions matter because your life will shine the truth and wisdom of God. Jesus allays your doubt and Jesus fortifies your faith so that you will live for him in complete and joyful obedience to his law and then people will see and what will happen, they will give glory to your father who is in heaven. They see wisdom bearing fruit, sanctification. Will you do what God is asking you to do? If you do, the truth that the wisdom of God resides in you is justified. As you do it, it, the wisdom that you actually have is justified for you, which brings you comfort and hope that God is at work in you. Sin does not allay your doubt. When has sin allayed your doubt? Never. Sin does not fortify your faith. When have you been more comfortable living in a life of sin? Never. You know God's grace. You know you have him and that you belong to him when he produces righteousness in you. That's sanctification, and sanctification is God bringing you comfort and assurance for your soul. How kind of him to work his grace in us. Sanctification justifies wisdom at work in you. Preference is a powerful thing, but the grace of God in Christ is more powerful. When our preference aligns with the world and Man, alive did I have a bad week. Not a good week. I was repenting this week of anger, hatred, and murder. All right? That's that. You know what my week was like. Not in a good spot. Aligning with the world. I have my preferences. I know what I want to do. But it is God's grace, brothers and sisters, which powerfully comes to us and works in us to change our preference and to align our preference with Christ so that we now prefer what he prefers. And then we live unto his glory. So I say, may it be so by the grace of God.